Welcome to the Care Principles video podcast. Today, Mark Noppen, CEO of the University Hospital Brussels, is our guest in the Care Principles video podcast. Mark became a familiar face in media during the pandemic. He also wrote a book called Gewoon Anders or Simply Different. In this book, he shares his insights and lessons in crisis management. And did you know that Mark is also a painter? One of his paintings has recently been auctioned for 900 euros for charity purposes. Well done, Mark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Care Principles video podcast. Another episode, another guest, and I'm very excited today because I have someone here in my office of whom I've written a case in my book. Um, and I've written the case without knowing the person. And so I'm very happy to have Professor Mark Noppen here in the studio. Mark, so welcome. Thank you. So happy you're here today. It's true, I've written the case, we've never met each other. No, that's true. Um, and then afterwards, I've, um, I've sent out the book to you. Um, and uh, meanwhile, you've read it or you haven't read it? I haven't. I have read it, yeah. Uh, even uh, last weekend, I, okay. I uh, was uh, going through the chapters to have a refresh. Just to freshen up a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. It's great to hear. But before we dive into the care principles, you are painting or you have painted? I have painted for many years when I was uh, young. <laughs> And uh, I've, I've stopped since uh, since yeah, 20 years maybe, but I still have a collection of paintings, and uh, I had given a lot away to friends and and, and so forth. And uh, two years ago, we had a charity uh, dinner uh, for our foundation, use at Brussels Foundation, and uh, one of my friends had the idea: Do you still have some paintings? We can do an auction. And the thing is that uh, my friend went on stage and uh, there was this painting and said, uh, okay, uh, we're going to auction a, a painting of a very famous painter who is in the room, but I won't tell you who it is. And so everybody was like, hmm? there was maybe a thousand people. So. And they were like, huh? and then, uh, okay, the auction was coming up and figures are going up. And it ended at uh, 900 euros, and which, which was very, very good. And then he asked for the painter to come on stage. And, and then it was me. And then the whole room was like, huh? <laughs> we didn't know he painted. <laughs> so it was fun. And did you meet the, the person who bought the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, were they I, happy? I personally, uh, I thanked the, the lady who, who bought the painting. And um, yeah, we, we had a little chat. And uh, and she said, uh, well, I, I absolutely had no idea, of course, that it was from you. But I just found it beautiful for my for my living room, and so I bought it. Great. So great story. That was a nice anecdote. A great story. <laughs> but of course, uh, that that was a hobby of you. Your yeah. profession is um, is running uh, one of the biggest hospitals in Belgium, Uzet in uh, in Brussels. Um, and I've written the, the the case in the book because I was really impressed um, in the beginning of the pandemic. You kept um, uh, you wrote for a financial newspaper and uh, a column, and I read that column and I was really impressed with agility, the agile way that you kind of reorganized um, your hospital mm -hmm. so fast when everybody that wasn't working in the hospital with the patients had to work from home. 
Could you explain a little bit for the people who, who haven't read the column and who don't know what happened at the time? I don't want to talk too much about COVID, but in this case, it's really relevant. Yes. Uh, well, actually, we were confronted with a completely new situation. Uh, nobody of us has ever witnessed uh, a pandemic of, of this nature and this magnitude. Um, luckily, between brackets, we were somewhat trained in crisis management because of the the Brussels terrorist uh, attacks uh, three years before. So we had an update at that time of our uh, emergency contingency plan of the hospital. Uh, but of course, it was of a completely different nature and completely different magnitude and, and time frame. And now was this, uh, this uh, pandemic, which was a complete unknown uh, in terms of magnitude, uh, du duration, uh, severeness, etc. Uh, because we only had images actually from, from northern Italy at that time, from Bergamo, Cremona, where you saw the, the hospitals being flooded and, and patients in the corridors and, and really dramatic situations. And it was quite, and then a few days later, the, the government issued the, I think, March 13th or so, uh, the complete uh, emergency plan for the country, if you want, with a complete lockdown. Uh, complete shutdown of the hospitals in terms of non-COVID care, uh, non-urgent non-COVID care. And we had to uh, reinvent the hospital, actually, because we, of course, had a, a massive influx of COVID patients, but we still ha had a lot of non-COVID pathology because a, a myocardial infarction or a stroke or, the, or trauma, it just happens. So we had to redesign the, the hospital in terms of uh, medical uh, patient flows and organization because those two patient groups could not be in contact uh, because of, of course, exchange of, of virus. Uh, we had to reinvent or um, uh, redesign actually the, the teams. Um, we had to look for uh, protective material, which was not available or almost not available. And uh, a lot of people, because of the lockdown measures, uh, a lot of uh, collaborators who were not immediately in patient care had to work from home, like administrative people, financial, uh, IT, etc. So that we had also to redesign. So actually what we, what we did was very quickly, and we listened very carefully to Michael Ryan, who is the executive director of the WHO, and who's a specialist in emergency contingency planning, and there's only one rule, speed. Uh, speed trumps perfection. Don't try to do things perfect because you will lose every time. Because you will lose time. And time is not money in this case, but people's lives. And uh, so we had um, a, a switch of our uh, governance of the hospital. We went from a very complex organization with a lot of iteration and a lot of advisory, etc., to a very, very, very uh, flat, well, uh, flat organization with a short vertical line. Uh, we had the executive committee who became the crisis committee. We had uh, power of attorney from our board because, uh, you know, we had no time to go back and forth to the board, etc. And very short lines to the hospital, which we changed in five departments, into five departments, patient flows and, and medical stuff. Nursing, which was a massive uh, deployment of, of change of, of work. HR, because of uh, all the other people who, what do we want to do with them? Um, then materials and logistics. And then 
already think about the future, about how are we going to re-switch to the normal activity and what are we going to do with our non-COVID patients, how are we going to tackle them. Mm -hmm. So um, this means that, for instance, in terms of agility, uh, the speed with which we, we, we took action uh, was for our hospital, and I think for many hospitals who took over intuitively this kind of work, uh, this method of working uh, was incredi incredibly fast. Uh, during the first four weeks of the crisis, in the first wave, we had uh, two times daily uh, crisis management at uh, eight in the morning and five in the evening, and decisions were taken there um, and were executed and did not have to go through the, the typical way of iteration, advice, uh, exactly. uh, compromise, etc. Which was, in my opinion, and that's why I wrote the columns in the, in the, the TED, uh, was in, 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 in opposition with what I saw, how the government was tackling the, the crisis. And, and they had very difficult uh, to leave this this um, overleg, uh, how do you call this, this debate culture mm -hmm. of trying to find consensus with everybody and iterate, etc. And so you lose a lot of time. You lose a lot so, of time. And a lot of agility. Totally, totally. Yeah. If you, okay, that was almost 18 months ago. Yeah. How is the situation today? Did you manage to keep a bit, little bit of that agility there? <laughs> or are yeah, you back not, to the... Well, um, it, it's a way of working uh, that I like, but which is not sustainable in, in the long term and in peacetime, let's say, because that would be like an, an autocratic uh, leadership style, which is not my style. And so we had to find a new balance uh, between uh, the, the, the normal way of working and the crisis, because we never had zero patients. Eh? Actually, this morning, we restarted the crisis uh, cell because we see an increase in patients in the Brussels area and uh, our current capacity is full so we have to rethink again so this is the fourth time that we have to do this uh, I hope and I think it will not be a new wave but uh, especially in the Brussels area it will still be for uh, the next couple of weeks or months it's still, it will still be a problem uh, but anyway, we have kept some some of the characteristics of the, the way of working in trying to have less meetings, um, more concise, more conclusive, um, and, and followed by action, and, and not too much reiteration. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a characteristic that we try to keep. Of course, the board is, is really involved in the, the way of working, uh, evidently. Um, so it, it goes a bit slower, which is good, because... You cannot work on adrenaline all the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we have found a new, a new balance. Luckily, we have been thinking in peacetime <laughs> before all this happened. Uh, since five, six years, we are rethinking the, the governance of the hospital. Because uh, a hospital is a, is a typical vertical hierarchy uh, with, with lots of layers and, and you know, this, this, this graph. Um, but uh, this is not how an hospital works and uh, you need this but um, you also need a more flat, horizontal, agile, flexible way of working 
to be more agile and this type holacracy type management. And we, we tried already since a few years to find a new balance uh, pending the, the question and the, 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 the problem that, is, that has to be solved. So we already had a new hybrid way of working, which, came, um, which was really handy in, in times of crisis and which we will continue now because it has been proven that it, uh, that it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I remember that you said, that I don't remember if it was in a column or in, in an interview with you, you, somebody asked you, a journalist probably asked you, okay, so you have all a big part of your staff now at home, working yes. from home. How do you control them? And does, does everybody know what to do? And your answer was, 90% of my people know exactly what to do. They take responsibility. They work even harder than we ask them. And, and of course, yes, this 10% that's probably not functioning as well as we would. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I prefer to focus on the 90% than on the 10%. I found that very relevant because a lot of CEOs and a lot of leaders today are very scared. Uh, yep. they, they now want to take everybody back to the, to the, to the office, uh, to, to the company, mm. because they want control. Um, mm. How is your view on that? Yeah, I have a more... Um, when you use the word control, there are two meanings. There's the, the, the French meaning is contrôler, is, is, eh? to control, and the Anglo-Saxon way is to be in control, which is not the same. And I prefer the Anglo-Saxon view on... And it's typical, the relationship between the board and the executive committee, for instance. Uh, some boards are really controlling. Eh? And that is part of the, of the role of the board, to control the, the budgets and, and, and the results, etc. But there is also an aspect to be in control. During the crisis, the board was still in control, because every week... I did a report to the board, we have done this, we have that, we have so many patients, we have blah, blah, blah. They were still in control, but they were not controlling. That's something else. And the same goes for people who work at home. Um, we were still in control because we, we knew what they had to do. We had the, the KPIs, if you want, or, or, or the results of their work. And that was okay. And how they arranged for their work, uh, if, whether they wanted to work in the middle of the night or... I don't know, from, from instead of 9 to 5, from 5 to 9, we couldn't care less as long as the results were there. And what we saw was that in the vast majority uh, of, uh, of people, uh, the results were similar or even better than they were before. That's one. Two, uh, the, the satisfaction was, was high. People liked this, at least for a, not too long a period. Um, and uh, a third thing is, um, if, if you're talking about, in our case, it was like 700 people who had to work immediately at home, that is, that's a normal distribution. Yeah? Uh, so you, you always have two standard deviations of people who, who are fantastic in this and a big chunk of, patient, of people who are just good and, and doing a good job. And you also have on the other side of the curve, you have two standard deviations of, of people who just make a mess out of it. So, but if you know that, okay, discard those and focus on, 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 on the, the big bell, if you want, and, and ask the ones in the, on the right side of the curve what they did to make, to make it work even better and, and share this. 
And um, what we do now, and we had also, we had an agreement with uh, the, the syndicates, uh, because we made a new collective agreement between the, the, the collaborators and, and the management of the hospital, um, where we uh, allowed for homework, we would provide all the equipment, the software, etc. We would pay uh, the internet connection, uh, we would make, uh, give ergonomic uh, stuff to, to have a comfortable uh, position at home, because it's not so simple and not everybody's living in the, no, in, in the castle. And uh, so, um, and it was really appreciated. And uh, what we are doing now in, in relative peacetime is we are continuing uh, homework, but on a more hybrid base where uh, the collaborators have to be in the hospital at least one day of their, of their assignment uh, because of um, teamwork at, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but uh, they also have to be at least one day at home. And so on average there is a, almost a 50-50 balance, I would say. And people are happy. Uh, we, have, we need less space. <laughs> Uh, less square square meters. Uh, we have more parking space. Uh, there is less uh, CO2 footprint. There is less mobility issues. Well, a lot of advantages, mm -hmm. <coughs> and people are are happy. So. And is the, is the hybrid system something um, that was chosen together with your collaborators, or or is that something that the management decided? From now on, we'll continue in hybrid. Well, uh, we we just uh, we we asked the collaborators, how, how do you like this this homework? And first of all, they were, like I said, the vast majority was was okay with it, but they also spontaneously spontaneously said, but we don't want to work at home for one hundred percent. So we still want to see, and 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 we also wanted to see them from time to time. Because there are certain decisions that you can only take in a group, and, uh, and if you have a, I don't know, a scrum or whatever, you need to be there. And uh, the same goes, for, for instance, for uh, the remote um, meetings with uh, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or stuff. That's, that's a keeper. Uh, we're going to keep this for formal information exchange sessions, not for debates or discussions or scrums. It doesn't work. But for the formal stuff, now we use Teams and we, we don't jump in the car, be in, in the traffic jam for an hour. Uh, that, that's for formal meetings, we, we don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like many things in life, you have to find a, a good balance. Totally, totally. One of the things that, and actually you have written a book yourself, it's yes. called Gewoon Anders, simply different, I would <laughs> translate it. Um, and one of the things that you plead for in your book um, is to have a different style of leadership, if I may, may call it that way. Um, maybe a more um, honest leadership, more vulnerable, more um, uh, not pretending to know everything, um, but also being able to make decisions. And then if the decision turns out wrong, to say, okay, um, I took the wrong decision, but it was for that, for that, for that reason. You give an example that if you have three options, your staff is giving you three options and you can't really decide which, which is the best one. You just go, okay, let's go for A and then we'll see along the way. Maybe B was better, yeah. but with, okay. Is that a style of management that you believe is is the management style for the future? 
or is it something that fits more with your personality or yeah a bit of both i think uh, actually in writing the book this was together with an expert in in writing and in editing the book so i'm not a professional writer so i gave the content and, and wrote the and rewrote but it was actually a professional bookmaker who helped mm -hmm. me so to be to be clear but in terms of leadership i think leadership in in general is well first of all you have to make a difference between management and leadership management that is uh, handling data uh, leadership is handling people yeah? so it's, you have to do both yeah? but it's two different things uh, i think your question goes more into um, uh, handling with with people and organizations if you want uh, and there i think leadership has to be contextual uh, situational uh, in in times of crisis uh, leadership was quite direct directive because you couldn't lose any time so you had to make fast decisions based on the data you had uh, which were incomplete or which were even unknown so you had to make assumptions and then indeed you have to make uh, you have to make a choice you can debate for eternally when we might do this we might do that that's possible but we're going to do doing this and we will check never never forget the latter you have to check and you have to change switch gears or change direction pending the result of your actions and that is something i miss a little bit is this um, this autocorrective way of of leadership and that implies uh, inevitably some kind of honesty and vulnerability in that, look, people, we just don't know. These are the known unknowns. Eh? The unknown unknowns, we don't even talk about them, but the, the known unknowns for the moment are these. We think that this is the good uh, decision. We have thought a lot about it, and etc. We've taken a decision. And if it's wrong, it's my mistake, and we, we won't do it again. That, that's, it's like Angela Merkel did it a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, but at a certain moment, the lender had uh, not the same opinion about stuff, and she said, "Puff, we're going to do it this way." And if she was proven wrong, she also admitted that she made a mistake, and she apologized, and she said, "But we will never make it again." I think that is genuine and authentic and good leadership. And maybe, and I also wrote it in the book, maybe it's a little bit more feminine than masculine. I was just about to say, is it, uh, is it the, more female leadership? I, I, I guess so. <laughs> and I'm a man, so I, I don't know if I'm, a, if I'm allowed to say that. But, I, but if you look at countries who are really led by, by women, prime ministers or presidents or whatever, or chancellors, um, they're doing better in the, in the crisis time. Eh? And if you look at the Nordics uh, in general, uh, except Sweden, which is not led by a woman, by the way, uh, and but also uh, New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, etc. Um, they have better results, and it's another. It's a, I, I think, but I'm not an I'm not a politologist or an, uh, an academic on that matter. But I think it might have to do with the this combination of um, agility, vulnerability, honesty, but also and, and don't. It's not soft. Eh? Also. Um, Deeds, tatkracht. Uh, uh, you said it. Uh, just action, action-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but maybe maybe it's more it's it's certainly certainly not the Trumpian or Bolsonaro or Johnson way of, of, of we, leading. <laughs> which is probably also very powerful still today because I, I think if we if we look at the world, what is happening today in the world, we see more or less two styles of, of, of management or of, of leadership and that is the, the Bolsonarian Trump kind of way which is like we know it and we are here and unfortunately very male driven although there's females doing that as well but it's like sure. from power and from status and from a kind of uh, uh, we-know-it-all attitude. And then you have the more, maybe a bit doubtful, maybe a bit more empathic, because I would li also like to talk yeah. about empathy yeah. uh, with Absolutely. you. Um, which which leadership which tries to understand what is happening um, in a broader yeah. sense than just what is around you. Yeah. Because I imagine also in a, in a hospital like yours, um, I, and you, you have been a CEO since 2006? 2006. 2006, yeah. so that's already a long time. How, how easy do you get into an ivory tower? How easy is it to, to get very far away from, from the issues that live in the... That's a risk. It's a, a risk, risk, no? That's a risk. And like, like this feminine, uh, masculine thing, they're also, uh, like if you look at Margaret Thatcher, she was like more like a let's say a masculine dominant totally. uh, way of doing things, whereas you also have male leaders who are more in, in the feminine style, like Justin Trudeau. Trudeau, Canada. totally. He's yeah. a good example of more, um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, has more these female between brackets characteristics, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, but in general, I think it's it, there is a difference. I think. Yeah, yeah, but in uh, in terms of. Um, uh, the risk of uh, isolating yourself uh, somewhere at, at the top and not knowing what is happening at the base, that is a risk. That is indeed a risk. And I must say that's a, a collab, uh, how do you say this, collateral benefit of, of this crisis was that uh, I was every day now during the crisis on the floor and also my colleagues of the executive committee. So... Uh, and this is a reflex that this is something you lose quickly because now in peacetime I don't do it anymore. And every day I say I have to, I have to, you know. Uh, but during the crisis, every day on the floor, in, on a different floor from the kitchen to the, the, the ICU, uh, you know, just visiting the wards and, and meeting people and like uh, you always say, eh, how are you? And then, oh, ça va, eh? like the usual answer but no no really how are you now eh? are, are things okay should we do something more or less whatever do you need something eh? and that is something then you really really know that um, it's not a good idea to stay in the ivory tower and maybe my first job has helped me there because for almost 20 years i've been a clinician and, and seeing, pa seeing patients and, and doing my pulmonology stuff so i was on the floor of course every day all day uh, but yeah, it's a good question. You tend to, uh, certainly in peacetime again, to, to isolate yourself again. A, a and be bit. more stuck in meetings again. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. And so the agenda gets full again with probably. things that we, we just skipped during the crisis. So are they really necessary? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's dive back into the care principles. So it's collaboration, agility, reliability, and empathy. And I would love to start with the last one, with empathy. Um, 
First, because I believe that we live in really turbulent times and um, we see that a lot of people struggle. Um, there's, of course, all the physical issues that people had, um, but there's a lot of mental pressure as well on people now. Um, and I strongly feel, I don't know if you have the same experience, but with the world reopening again, it gives even more mental pressure. People have this fear of missing out again. We were used for like almost 18, 18 months just to work from home, very, very small bubbles, just your family or mm -hmm. just a couple of friends. Now everything reopens again. And so even, even me, and I'm a very optimistical person, independent, I can, I can make my own agenda. And even I have the idea that oh, I, can't, I can't handle it all. What, what is going on? Um, trying to better understand, trying to really empathize with others, I, I honestly believe it will be important for the future. Is it something that you agree with? What is your feeling on empathy? Uh, on the, the first part of your question, uh, I, I have the same uh, feeling uh, or perception that um, the... Um, how do you, uh, There are two things that are really um, popping up, I think, is complexity of all the, the problems that we face. Climate change, right? we've seen it uh, with the flooding during the summer, but we also, not, not in temperature December, but in general, the, the heating of the planet, etc. And uh, so that, and it's a very complex problem. And still there is a, a I don't know, there is... So difficult to have a global, a global acceptance of this fact and a global reaction on this because there's no planet B, like they say. So I think that's one of the major uh, challenges for for the future. And you cannot solve it with one-liners and with uh, short-term political governance that we have today. Uh, one period is four, five, six years, but this is something for the next two hundred years. I mean. So you need very, very long, uh, long-term planning, and our political system simply is not made for this. So I don't know how we have to solve this, and it's very complex. Uh, and secondly, um, the general pace of life is is very high, and so um, and uh, uh, it's also something that is striking for me. And during the crisis, although we were I've never worked so hard as during the crisis, but the general pace in the society was lower, was slower, because there was less to do, and there was less, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, stimulations uh, for coming from from everywhere. Last week I gave an interview on uh, uh, how do you call this uh, a documentary, a little live interview on on free time, eh? how I fill my free time, and. I, I start by saying, what, what a strange question. Does this imply there is also non-free time? Uh, what do you mean by free time? I also like, well, things you do not do at your work, and like, uh, or hobbies, and this and that, and, and, and you could um, immediately, I was almost stressed <laughs> by the question, on what, how do I have to fill my free time? Yeah, I don't make the difference. I'm, I'm very lucky, yeah, because at, uh, my work is my ikigai. Yeah. Two times I've found the good balance, I hope. 
So for me, free time is just part of my life, uh, just as my job is part of my life. I don't make the, the, the distinction because it gives stress. You have to choose then something. Yeah? And uh, that, that is something that is so striking to me is that people are so, some... Uh, yesterday I, th I heard on the radio uh, somebody talking about a Chinese um, thing that has popped up a few months ago on doing it slowly. And it was censored, of course, by the Chinese government, and they, they just always said the opposite. You have to work hard, ambition. And, uh, and that was a group, uh, hundreds of thousands of followers immediately said, okay, let's slow down. I don't have to be, you know, uh, working uh, six, uh, what was the 669? Six, six, six days a week um, from six to nine. That's the, that's the Chinese way of working. I thought, mm, <laughs> yeah, far away there. But uh, and then afterwards they have to go to the music school and and mm. sporting and crazy whatever. life. So yeah. they must they must be crazy. I mean, they must become uh, crazy. And uh, uh, apparently, a big part of society has enough. So, let's slow down. Now, again, eh, it, it's it's a question of balance. I think for some people, the balance is like in my case. I'm lucky. Yeah. I have a fantastic job, I'm still healthy, I mean, uh, but for me, the, the ambition is high and the level is very high, but not everybody has had the same opportunities and the same conditions and the same environment, and for them it might be completely different. And uh, there's no single solution for, for everybody, I think. And this is somewhat, somewhat missing, I think, this... Uh, and accepting that is a form of empathy, I think, to come to your question, is that you, if you accept that not everybody is in the same situation and has all the same uh, possibilities and the same facilities, etc., and you have to empathize with, with those people. And uh, I've seen it during the crisis in the hospital. Uh, it was easily said, eh? you have to live uh, in a small apartment with two children and suddenly everybody is at home and you have to work and your husband has, has to work and the kids are there. Uh, easily said. Eh? Uh, so that is why we did a lot of actions in the hospital from day one to uh, alleviate the pressure if needed and to... Um, uh, have a, um, how do you say that, uh, uh, comforting uh, attitude. Uh, uh, and we did maybe a hundred actions or so, uh, from very small things to uh, our foundation did a, a huge job and uh, to help the people and to, to support if needed. Not, not uh, top down because I, th I thought we had to do it. No, just because I felt that it, there was a need for this a very low threshold um, place, for instance, where people could go and relax, and there would be psychologists and, and trauma experts and physiotherapists, you know, to people who have done the shift of 12 hours on the COVID ICU. I can tell you, uh, the mask is burnt in your face, uh, you're like, oh. and then they had to go home where there were kids, and you know, just cool down, relax. That is also, uh, I think, uh, a form of empathy for uh, for your uh, collaborators. Mm. Well, I, I I think you've done an amazing job in taking good care and feeling very empathic for your for your people, for your staff. 
Um, there's also, you, you've written a lot of examples about that. Um, but how empathic is a hospital in general for, it, for its patients? Uh, that is a good question. That is something, uh, luckily, that we were, uh, uh, had started prior to the crisis. Uh, because we had uh, we, every five years, so my mandate is five years. Mm -hmm. So every five years there's a, a new, not a new, but a, let's say an adaptation of the strategic plan of the hospital because the, env the environment is changing so rapidly. But one of the one of the the, the, the themes that we had defined in the hospital prior to the, the crisis was patient experience. It's a, it's a broad term to and it encompasses a lot. But especially uh, the the yeah the experience mm -hmm. of a patient going to the hospital. Nobody likes to go to the hospital for for a medical problem, so it's very important. And we have we have done that based on on research. Eh? We have interviewed four thousand patients, and uh, every day we we question I think two thousand patients with uh, um, an NPS uh, platform. Uh, so we have a lot of feedback and. Uh, and we are trying to give an answer to the, the, the uncomfort and the stress that it gives to go to a hospital. And there also, eh, uh, you say a hospital, uh, but the hospital is, is not a hospital, is not a hospital. I mean, we have different populations in, in that hospital. Eh? And, and the people that have to go to a psychogeriatric consultation are different people than go to the children's hospital eh, or to the fertility clinic or to the cardiology department. They have different problems, different age groups. They have different, uh, you know, categories of people. And still a hospital is like one size fits all uh, thing, uh, which is uh, usually white and, and it, it smells like Javel and it's, it's, not, it's not a nice place to be. So we, we try to work with odors, we try to work with colors, we try to work with art uh, and, and try to make a, what we call a healing environment. And um, that is not easily, it's easy, more easily said than done. Eh? You have to rethink art. And rules and regulations are not up to this because there are lots of standards. And uh, but luckily, like I said, we were already busy with that before the crisis. And uh, now, in uh, when hopefully when normal times more or less return, we can uh, we can pick up that. Mm. Nice, nice. Um, we've talked about agility. We talked about empathy. I would like to talk about collaboration because it's something you talk a lot about it as well in your book. Um, but one of the things that I really liked is on innovation. Um, for instance, uh, some of your engineers have worked together with uh, university, with, of course, the, the VUB, the, the, the Belgium University that you are connected to, yeah. um, but also with, again, external partners to make in no time respiratory masks or something with... with yeah, uh, ventilators. Ventilators. Yeah. yeah. Respirators, actually. Respirators, yeah. yeah. I thought that was a great example of, um, of yeah. agile innovation and creativity and, and, and collaboration. And teamwork. And, and teamwork. collaboration. And uh, again, eh, in, in, like I said, in peacetime, uh, we, we tend to make things so complicated and complex. And it takes a lot of time to make, for instance, a collaborative agreement between, let's say, a university, a hospital, a private partner, and whatever. Because you need, there are always a lot of lawyers. <laughs> 
we did a lot of paperwork about intellectual property and this and, and the that, and liability and, and ethics committee and uh, you name it. And but in COVID again, we didn't have time, and we were running out of respirators. And uh, there, there were two solutions for that. Uh, luckily, I've quite a large network built in those years, so I, I, I know people who can deliver, etc. But again, with power of attorney, because normally you have to follow a procedure of a European tender, etc. It takes Device, six months. Yeah. So now I bought 10 respirators uh, for my car phone on a Friday night, you know, chuck, chuck, uh, which is completely illegal, but you have to do it. And the other alternative is, why don't we make them ourselves? And so the engineers of the faculty of engineering, they were also uh, homebound eh, because universities were closed. And they, they learned about the fact that we didn't have respirators and just got a mail, a phone call from uh, an engineer. Uh, what do you need actually? A respirator, what is that? So, yeah, actually, basically it's a pump. It pumps air into patients and it sucks air out of patients. So and they were like, okay. And they made with open source uh, collaboration. Uh, within a week, they made a prototype of a respirator. And they used, uh, uh, you know, windscreen wiper motors from Audi Brussels because the company was closed. And we worked together with Audi for exoskeletons and robots, etc. And so, so they used that little electromotor and they used the mask from Decathlon, from diving masks, etc. And they made a respirator. And it's open sourced and it's actually, it has been used, built and used in South America. Uh, and, um, and that is fantastic. And another example that I, I write in the book is on uh, the development of an uh, artificial intelligence self-learning program based on the CT scans that would be taken by patients. And, and so it, it's all, it's like, it's amazing. Eh? There were just not enough tests. And we had patients coming in. So how do you diagnose COVID? 99% of those patients have lung problems. So we said, okay, let's take a CT scan of the lungs, every patient. CT scans nowadays, it's 100% digital. And so you have a lot of data. And we had a lot of patients. And so we collaborated with a number of hospitals. And uh, we would make CT scans, put them to the uh, algorithm, and make it a learning algorithm because we would feed the algorithm with the outcome of those patients. So within a few months, we had a system where if you would take a CT scan of a patient, it, it, the algorithm would not only say this is COVID, but would also say within 48 hours, these patients will be on ICU. So act quickly. And this will, this will be the outcome because we had 1,000 patients. And so we could make the, the algorithm smarter and smarter. And this was uh, done within uh, within three months. Normally, this would have taken I don't know two years. So that is that is collaboration uh, in the true sense of. Uh, but that's a good example of, of cross-boundary collaboration. But you also had the collaboration within the hospital, the teams. Um, that's that's very important. Uh, and again, is that something because you said regulations and. And I agree, I think legislation and regulations are the two things that are really making it difficult to, to, to turn the world into a more contemporary version that, that is needed to find solutions for this, the challenges that we are facing. You were talking about the climate urgency. Um, mm. 
we will need different rules and regulations because with the existing yeah. ones, we can't solve it. Yeah. Um, but to go back to your situation, do you think that on the collaborative modus, is that something that you will be able to hold on to in the future? Or again, do you feel there as well that you are colliding? We, we will return to the, the peacetime situation where there are rules and regulations. That's There's, no way, out, there's no way around it. Um, but and, and there's and this also a tendency that I've seen in these 15 years. Uh, if you look at governance, eh, you have a board and you have an executive committee, etc. Uh, the, the complexity and the control mechanisms that I've seen coming in those 15 years are really amazing, and it's all based on a lack of trust eh? uh, and uh, the, ref the reflex. You know, it's the same with the, the Gauss cu curve. Eh? If you look at all the companies of the world, eh, you will have two standard deviations of corks. Eh, you will always have them. Whether And, and sometimes something pops up, Dieselgate, uh, Emron, uh, you know, uh, BP, uh, you know, scandals will pop up. 3M now in 3M. Belgium. It will happen. Of course. So what is the reflex? Ah. We will make an extra control layer, an organism, an, a platform, a governance, whatever, to make that this won't happen again. Actually, it will happen again. But for the 97.5% of non-crook companies, it's an extra burden. So to give you one example, we have a pension fund in the hospital. And there have been, you know, every three, four years, there is a pension fund who does silly things. Okay. Let's make another layer of control. So I've seen coming, I think, three extra layers, one every five years, of, of control mechanisms, who control everything but are not liable. Not liable. But you have to have them. And, but we, we still will have pension funds, and we make the crooks smarter, <laughs> and we increase the burden on the, on the non-crooks. And that, that comes with a price. Because the pension fund has to pay for that. And you need more lawyers, and you need more control organisms, and you need more audit committees, and you need more. And I think that is, uh, that is not, how do you say this? That's the difference be between contrôler and be in control. We always want to control more, and we lose control. And uh, that's something I'm still struggling with. Uh, to, how can you solve this, actually? I, I was about to ask you, do you, do you have any solution to that? No, no. Except try it on, on a micro scale in, in one company like ours or one organization like ours and try to build a more uh, trustworthy uh, or, or trust-based uh, governance and uh, give give trust to your collaborators. Eh? And that is something that has helped us in COVID. It's like uh, at a certain time uh, we had to build a new intensive care. We had to double intensive care capacity. So you build a new unit uh, of a medium care unit. It was built over the weekend. No, that's unheard of. Eh? Uh, the, the only reason why this, this uh, was possible that I said to the the responsible people say, build it. Don't come with, should you paint it white or red or where do I buy it? No, just do it. 
And uh, then you see that, okay, you have this team that organizes itself. I said, okay, guys, and I have pictures of that. And, and during the weekends, they were, they were just building and, you know. And on Monday morning, a new unit opened. And that is something that you can only do with, uh, with uh, yeah, team spirit and purpose. Huh? That's another one of my key words. It's purpose, purpose, purpose. You, you, um, you actually say in the book that before um, you learned about purpose, but you thought it was a bit of a marketing kind of uh, word and you didn't yeah. really understand. But now that you really f you understand what is the use of purpose and how it can drive an organization and also drive an organization, yeah. and you actually became very uh, purpose-driven. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. The organization was purpose-driven. There was one purpose, no Bergamo. Point. Let's let's you know and and let's tackle this. And then you have mini purposes, eh? like mm -hmm. building an intensive care unit in one weekend. Wow! Mm -hmm. If you give that to people who like to build, and uh, then they are happy, eh? and they build it. And and it, throughout the organization, it, it goes like this. And, and that's a that's a very um, so purpose and ambition. Eh? That is. Uh, and culture, right? it, it goes together. And I, I was thinking about the example of um, why do the Belgian hockey players become Olympic champion and why do the Belgian soccer players never will be world champion? Because of that. You have probably the most talented group of soccer players. But what I miss is the, the purpose. Is the And I can be wrong eh, because I don't know them. Eh, but if I look at what happened to the Belgian hockey team, Ten years ago, they said, we want to be European champion, world champion, Olympic champion. And it will happen. If they would have lost, again, the Olympic final, they would, they would have committed suicide between brackets. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be happy with the second place. Mm -hmm. In the soccer team, I have like, okay, we reached the quarterfinals. It's not so bad, you know? Mm -hmm. No. No. <laughs> so. Well, they're also coming from different... Uh from, from different levels and different backgrounds. And I, maybe the soccer team is already a bit laid back because they already earn a lot of money and they if have would, social would, status. Yeah, if I would earn 300,000 euros a week like they do... It's a different ball game. Let's call it like I that. Maybe I wouldn't be so ambitious Ambitiously anymore. driven. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, I would like to wrap up. And I have um, actually three small questions. First of all, you have read the book. Any idea how you would apply the care principles within your your uh, hospital or your organization? Uh, I think we are already doing it yes, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. 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 Any any new insights you got from it, or that you say? Uh, I liked so, some of the cases you you uh, described. Like uh, there was this this Dutch uh, shop that had a, a quebble casa uh, or something. Ah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Just for because there are more and more elderly and often lonely people. Yeah. So you have this this corridor at the, the supermarket yes. where they can just slowly. Yes, the cashier where they can just and, talk and yeah, totally. And, uh, yeah, the bubble the, comes These up. kind of examples and then yeah. the collaboration. I also remember between McDonald and Aldi. Yeah. I think. The staff. Uh, that's uh, also agility, collaboration, uh, and it's, it's you know, it's all about people. <laughs> It's all about people. It's all about people. Totally. And, uh, it's so important. Totally. Final question, Mark. Um, and I ask this question to anyone. What can 
other companies, other leaders, other people learn from you or from UZ Brussels? What can uh, anybody apply, even if they are not in a in a medical uh, sector? Or they can learn from us. Yes. What, what they can apply, what can they do, uh, what, do you have they tips They can buy and the tricks? book and, and <laughs> apply the things that are in there. You know, just for the record, the, the book goes to the, 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 the profit goes to the foundation. And the foundation has a, has a fund for, goes back to the collaborators to, to make stuff for the comfort center, to be clear. So that may be something that they could... I'll show the book again <laughs> to the people who are, who are looking they, they, they at the video. They could from... Uh, it's really from worth it. It's a great book. It's really... I, I even uh, laughed a lot with it, so yeah. you wouldn't expect that from a book from... A, <laughs> and from and a personally, uh, or the other way around, I, I stole a lot from other companies. Uh, things to do and things not to do. Uh, we Sometimes we just... Sometimes, uh, for, for instance, when, when a few years ago uh, the, there was these buzzwords, uh, lean, six sigma, etc. And so I didn't really understand how to apply this in the hospital. So I, with my executive committee, we went to the Volvo cars company plant in Ghent. Mm -hmm. And auto, automo uh, the car company, uh, fabrication company, it's the typical example of Kanban and lean, six sigma, etc. Chuck, 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 standardization. And so forth. And so the moment we entered the Volvo car company, I knew this is not a hospital. I, I cannot learn anything here, um, except for one or two departments of my hospital. So which strengthened my idea that a hospital is not a hospital. It's not a hospital. It's a, it's an, uh, a conglomerate it's a of business units. Yeah. And some of my business units there, I can apply the, the Kanban system. But in others, it would be disastrous. So that's something I learned there. And Another thing I learned about experience is when I uh, when when we could travel. Uh, you remember when we could travel? Uh, so my favorite city is New York City. So every year I go to New York City because there's a lot of alumni also live there. And uh, normally I have a hotel, uh, a typical hotel on uh, Times Square, uh, typical hotel, and it was fully booked. So I had to look for another one. And I went to Citizen M, which is a Dutch I hotel know it, yeah. chain. It was also on Times Square, Street, yeah. and I came into this hotel and I said, what is this? This is my new polyclinic. Okay. Uh, because of the experience. Normally, you, 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 uh, when you go to a hotel, you expect to have the, the this counter, counter with nice people in uniforms who there is ask the, self the, the, same, the same questions all over again which they already should know because I have reserved. Of course. They know I have peanut allergy, they know I want this and la la la. And all those questions again, my, my credit card, my passport, my this, my that. And everywhere is the same. And there in Citizen M, and there was nothing, just a nice lounge and music and drinks and cafe and screens. Self-check-in. And yeah. it was like, you touch the screen oh, eh, and said, and just one question, eh, did you make a reservation? Yes, no, yes, okay, put your credit card in there. Hi, Mark, here's your, here's your key. Bye. It's an Ten amazing seconds. experience. Yeah. And you can have a drink and la la la. I said, this, that, oh, yeah, I just loved it. And so part of our outpatient clinic will hopefully be something like that. So you just have to steal... Uh, but it's better to steal good ideas um, and copy good ideas from others than to invent bad ideas. That's Absolutely. definitely that's definitely true. 
I think that's a nice one to stop with, to yeah. steal from others. <laughs> Thank Great. you so much for being here. It's Thank been you a, for having me. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you for the people who were watching this. This was another episode of the Care Principles video podcast. Thank you and take care. Do you also want to grow your brand in a caring and sustainable way? Check out thecareprinciples.com and see how we can help you.